The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. Anticipation changes the way you live and it affects the things that you do. When children are looking forward to Christmas, maybe they start behaving. But if you talk to teachers, when summer break's approaching, maybe not so much. I know none of the children here have ever been guilty of that. The anticipation of a child being born definitely affects what the parents do. You start to put a crib together, you paint the baby's room, you do all sorts of those things to prepare if you have a trip coming up, there are things you do to make sure everything's organized and everything's planned out. You may need a passport. You may need to ask a good friend to drive you to the airport or pick you up or things like that. When we look forward to something, when there is anticipation, it changes things in the present. And that's really what the end of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is all about. If you'll open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 today, we'll finish this chapter. For much of the chapter, Paul has taught about Christ's future coming. He is coming again. He will judge this world. But Paul shared those prophecies of the future with the hope that it would change their present. Paul wanted the anticipation of Christ's return to change their lives right then. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning as we look at these two verses at the end of the chapter. Does your life anticipate Christ's return by bringing him glory in the present? Look at the last two verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul writes, Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, verse 11 starts out with this word, wherefore, some translate it, to this end or with this in mind. And it's basically just a phrase that looks back at everything he just said, okay? He just mentioned Christ will return. He will be the righteous judge. He will right every wrong. Those who have rejected the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will be punished. They will be judged with everlasting destruction away from God's presence. But those who have trusted him as their savior will be given rest. And he will be glorified and admired in us, among us, and by us. And so with this in mind, with that glorious future in mind, Paul actually starts to pray. He prays. He says, we pray always for you. I want you to think about that for just a minute. Have you ever thought about prayer in this way? that I need to pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I need to pray for my church because Christ will return one day. That's a reality. He will return one day to be glorified in us, so I better pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ right now. 
Paul prayed because of that. The more we grasp and understand and anticipate Christ's return, the more we realize that our lives matter now, which should lead us to pray for one another even more. And Paul's prayer for them was not a one-time thing. It was a continuous, ongoing, habitual prayer. Every time Paul thought about the Thessalonians, he prayed for them. And we ought to do the same in our lives. Please don't neglect to pray for one another. Because Christ's coming again. Pray for each other individually, personally. Pray that, that we will live lives that glorify Christ. Pray for our church as a whole, that we would be a group that magnifies Him. If, we, if we're going to be a church that reaches her full potential for the glory of God, we have to be prayerful people. The famous pastor Charles Spurgeon, he used to have people visit the church he pastored in London. And they, people would come to find out why it was so successful, if I can use that term. He would take them downstairs to a sort of basement room where people would be praying. And he called it the engine room of his church. And he said this, if the engine room is out of action, then the whole mill will grind to a halt. Do not underestimate the power and the importance of praying for one another and praying for our church. Now, it's probably no surprise to read that Paul and Silas and Timothy constantly prayed for this group of people, right? That doesn't surprise us. But what may surprise us is what is lacking in their prayer. And what I mean by that is that there is something they did not pray for, which might surprise us knowing the circumstances of the Thessalonians. Remember, these believers were suffering persecution. They were being afflicted because they trusted Christ. And yet Paul, in his prayer, did not petition for God to remove those afflictions. That's not what he prays in verse 11 and 12. Do you remember in James's letter when he taught us about trials? James told us to respond to trials. He never commanded us to ask God to remove the trial from our life. Instead, he told us to consider them joyfully. Not because trials are fun, but because we have the knowledge that God can work in our trials to grow us and mature us. He can use those difficult times for our benefit. James did, however, command us to ask for wisdom. So think about it this way. Instead of asking for the trial to be taken away, why not ask for wisdom to be given? Because if the trial is removed, then so is the opportunity for growth. Now, that doesn't mean it's always wrong to pray for God's deliverance, okay? Paul, in his own life, did that at least three times, right? He called this, this messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet him. That was his words in, in one of the Corinthian letters. He asked the Lord three times for that thorn in the flesh to be removed. But God ordained something else to be right, as Brother Connor and Brother Jordan just saying. God had different and better plans than to remove that from Paul's life. He told Paul, my grace is sufficient. 
And so by God not removing that trial, Paul learned a very valuable lesson. He learned that when he's weak and humbled, then Christ's power can reach a more complete state in his life. So let your request be made known unto God. Pour your heart out to him, but then trust him no matter what. Whatever he ordains is right and trust him. So here, instead of praying for God to remove their suffering, which is what we might expect, Paul actually prays for God to be working in their lives during and even through it. Specifically, he prayed for God to do two things. Notice the verse. The first thing he is praying for God to do is to count you worthy of this calling. The idea of being worthy echoes back to verse 5. If you look in that verse, it's where Paul talked about God counting them worthy to suffer for his kingdom. A few weeks ago, we looked at those verses. I mentioned that the Bible does not promise Christians lives filled with success and physical prosperity. That doesn't mean there are no wealthy Christians, but that is not a guarantee of Scripture like some would have you believe. In fact, there are quite a few verses that prepare us for the opposite, right? There's a lot of verses that prepare us for trials and for affliction because if we're going to live for Christ in the world that rejected him, why would we be surprised if we're persecuted and afflicted just like he was? We shouldn't be. But ironically, Paul actually encouraged the people with the fact that they were suffering. As, as simple as it seems, the fact that they were suffering for God's kingdom is pretty good indication you're in God's kingdom. And so the persecutions that they faced did not need to create doubt in their hearts. It didn't need to, uh, you know, question. Uh, they didn't need to question God. Instead, be thankful and feel blessed and be encouraged by the fact that your God considers you worthy to suffer for him. That's a blessing. This time, there's a little similarity because of the, the idea of being worthy or being counted worthy, but it's a little bit different. Paul doesn't mention their suffering this time. And he used the word calling instead of the, the phrase kingdom of God. Calling does look back to their salvation. But it also looks forward to how salvation should change their lives. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read a few verses here in just a second that fit with the text in 2 Thessalonians. It's another place where Paul urged us to walk worthy of our calling. And I want you to think about it this way. When you trusted in Jesus, God poured incredible blessings and privileges into your life. There are so many advantages and blessings of being a Christian, of being his child. But it also comes with responsibilities and expectations. Okay, we represent God now. We are his children and he expects us to live worthy of that calling, worthy of that invitation into his kingdom. So look at Ephesians chapter four and verse one. Paul wrote, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. That word vocation there is the same word from second Thessalonians that was translated calling. Walk worthy of the calling. Say, well, how do I do that? 
What does it look like if I'm, if I'm living or walking worthy of that calling and of that, that invitation? Well, look at the next two verses. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. A patient, humble, gentle, forgiving, loving, peaceful lifestyle is a life worthy of your calling. Who does that sound like? When you think of lowliness and meekness and forgiveness and peace, that's Jesus Christ. That's walking worthy of your calling. And so tying this back into 2 Thessalonians, Paul prayed that God would count them worthy of the calling. But that is also going to involve the way they are living their lives. This is not about earning salvation. It's not about being deserving of that, okay? It's about living after salvation the way God expects his children to live. Live like a child of God. And humbly pray that God would consider your life as being raised up to his standard. You may remember we've talked about this word worthy a few times in this chapter, and that's the idea of it. It's being raised up to a standard, raising the bar. Paul prays for that for these people. And the second part of his prayer actually ties in with that. It ties in with the way a Christian ought to live. Notice in verse 11, about halfway through the verse, we get the second part of the prayer, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. What does that mean? Well, before we break it down, essentially it means that God should be able to work through your life. God should be able to accomplish his purposes through you. This term for good pleasure, it refers to good and gracious uh, favorable purposes and desires. Some translations say desires or resolve. And it, it probably does point to what we might call an inward uh, desire. You know, some inward feeling or, or, or resolve. But whose desire are we talking about? The King James, if you have the King James translation, you see it adds the word his in italics. It assumes that we're talking about God's desires. You know, he's the one that Paul is asking to fulfill these things. You may have a modern translation that interprets it as your desires. It may say something about your resolve or your desires. In the Greek, there's actually no pronoun at all. It's literally every good desire of goodness. So whose desires did Paul want to be fulfilled? Yes. Think about it this way. Should not our desires begin to match and mesh with God's desires anyway? The more we become like him, the more his purposes and intentions become ours anyway. We should desire the same things that God desires. But this is so much more than simply our thoughts and wishes aligning with his desires internally. Do you want to have a heart like God's? Absolutely. But this is more than having a heart like God's. 
because it also means that we actively do things that make those internal desires an outward reality. That's where the word goodness comes in. This word goodness was used when someone was openly generous, beneficent, charitable, all of those words would work. And it demanded an active spirit, okay? If you were lazy and never did anything outwardly to help others, you did not have goodness. This is not about a, a moral quality of not sinning. This is an active spirit of goodness. One lexicon defined it like this. It is a positive moral quality characterized especially by interest in the welfare of others. He said you could just call it generosity. So what exactly is Paul praying? Well, Paul prays that God would fulfill every good purpose through the active goodness of his people towards others. Another way that you could describe this is how he says it at the end of the verse. Works of faith with power. That's again sort of one of those statements serving double duty where you see both the inward desire and the outward action. Faith should create certain gracious desires within us, right? But faith is also not something merely internal. It should manifest itself outwardly. Have you ever read the book of James? James wrote, faith without works is dead, didn't he? Genuine faith should lead us and motivate us to good and fruitful actions. We don't want to be like the man James described in chapter 2 of his letter, who saw his brother or sister in need, destitute of daily necessities, and said, be ye warmed and filled. He saw there was a need, but he refused to help. How can God fulfill good and gracious purposes through someone's life that lives like that? That's not a life that God can use. And that's a really convicting thought. I'll be honest, I spent more time on this phrase studying for this sermon than the whole two verses combined. Is God able to use you? Our lives should be, a, should be a conduit for God's goodness to flow into the lives of other people. Actively helping others because you know what? That's exactly what God did for us. Think about this. God did not just have some warm, nice internal desires to help you. He acted to make that happen. He sent Jesus to die for you. That's active goodness. And goodness is a godly characteristic. In fact, it's one of those aspects of the Holy Spirit's fruit in Galatians chapter 5. Goodness. It's the same word used. So we need the Holy Spirit helping us in this. We need him working in our lives to produce this active goodness, 
not for our glory, but so that others can see God's goodness in our lives, so that God can fulfill good purposes in our lives because of what we did. So we also see in this this beautiful cooperation between God and his child. God's Spirit's the one producing this goodness. He's the one cultivating it. We don't take credit for it. God gets the glory. He's the one fulfilling the purposes. But God's involvement does not dismiss you from obedience. There's still some resolve on your part to follow the Spirit's leadership, to actually do it. You could just call it this, obedience. Okay, just because God's the source and the power doesn't mean that you don't need to obey. Don't ever think, well, I really wish God would would really do something right now to help that person. That's what you're here for. God can use you to help that person. God's power does not negate your involvement. Just to give you a scriptural example of this, there are multiple times in the life of King David where he would go out and fight a battle. And the Bible's clear that God delivered David that day. God uh, God preserved David that day. He gave David the victory. But David still had to fight. There's a cooperation between David and God. God had all the power, and David obeyed. Great things happened. I read from Philippians chapter 2 earlier. Paul talked about this mutual cooperation there as well. When he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Both to will and to work for his, guess what word, for his good pleasure. Same word again. Paul was saying that God has worked in the desire and the ability to do what pleases him, but your responsibility is to work that out. You still have to obey. Put some feet to it, you might say. Be active. Don't be lazy, disobedient. Don't be uncompassionate. Don't always look for someone else to be the one to help. You step in and help. You be the person God can use to fulfill his great purposes. Before we get into verse 12, I want to remind you one more time that this group of people was suffering persecution. And yet Paul is teaching them to make their lives about other people. Paul does not pray for the afflictions to be removed. Instead, he prays for them to help others, to have a spirit of active goodness. Think about this. Even persecution did not excuse them from being actively and purposefully good towards other people. Didn't they see that example in Paul's life? Paul did not allow the sufferings that he faced to, keep, uh, to stop him from coming to Thessalonica. If you remember that missionary journey, Philippi was the city they traveled to before Thessalonica. And in Philippi, Paul and Silas were beaten and imprisoned. He could have waved the white flag and said, well, this missionary journey is just not going to happen. I quit. Paul didn't do that. 
He loved the Lord enough and he cared about people enough not to let his own suffering stop him from actively being good towards others. And in this case, that meant sharing the gospel with people. And so verse 11 gives us the substance of the prayer. Anticipating Christ's return, Paul prayed that God would count them worthy and fulfill good purposes in their lives. That's the prayer. But what's the point? Well, the point's verse 12. The point is that Jesus is glorified in all of this. Verse 12, Paul says, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. What exactly does it mean uh, that Jesus' name be glorified? If you were here Wednesday night, Brother Doug talked about this in one of the Proverbs lessons. His name simply means him. It's, it's the fullness of who he is. It's his attributes. It's his characteristics. It's who he is. But what's so interesting here to me is if you look back at verse 10, remember that Paul has already taught that Jesus would be glorified in his saints. He will be glorified in us when he comes again. That is going to happen. But why wait? Why not make that future more of a reality right now? that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. Not just in the future, but right now. When we are living as God desires, think back to verse 11, when we're walking worthy of our calling and we have active goodness towards others, Jesus receives glory from your life right now. Oh yeah, he'll be glorified when he comes again. Absolutely he will. But our lives should be a, a precursor, a foretaste, a foreshadowing of that future glorification of Jesus Christ. One day, everyone will see it, right? That was kind of the point of several of these verses. He will be uncovered. There will be a revealing an unveiling of who Jesus is, and everyone's opinion of Jesus Christ will be elevated. Whether they believed him or not, they will see him as Lord. But are we living our lives currently to elevate the opinion of others about him now? Does our lives proclaim to this world the fullness of who Jesus Christ is? Is he magnified in you? Jesus said it this way during the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before men. Why? That they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. God can receive glory when his children have good works. Shame on us if we wait until he returns to glorify him. But did you notice halfway through the verse that incredibly this glory is reciprocal? He said that he may be glorified in you. Notice he adds, and ye in him. Wow. 
I think it's probably pretty obvious that Christ needs to be glorified in us, but don't forget that we too share in his glory. I think this is a reminder of those blessings we have when we trust Christ. And it definitely looks forward to the future glory when he returns. There's a lot of verses I could read, but I want to share just a few that mention our shared glory with Christ when he comes again. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you will appear with him in glory. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Paul said, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. In 1 Peter 5.10, Peter wrote that the God of all grace has called you into his eternal glory in Christ. I love that phrase, Peter used the God of all grace. Because this is impossible apart from God's grace. How could a sinful, fleshly human being share in the glories of Jesus Christ? It's impossible without God's grace. Which is how Paul ended the verse, right? According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace is so incredible that sinful people have the opportunity to share in the matchless glory of Jesus Christ. If you will repent and trust in Him as your Savior, if you will, through faith, share in His sufferings, you will also share in His glory. Because the grace of God. I mentioned that Paul gave the Thessalonians a great example of not letting suffering stop you from being actively good towards someone else, right? Paul wasn't the only example, right? They knew an even better example. What about Jesus? Jesus willingly left glory, knowing the rejection and the humiliation and the the suffering that he would face, knowing the crucifixion awaited him. And he did not let that suffering stop him from being actively good to everyone in this world. That's how much he loves you. That he died for you. And God, the Father, used his death to fulfill the greatest purposes. Our forgiveness, our salvation, our redemption. If you've never died with Jesus Christ, I pray that you will do that this morning. And what I mean by that is that you repent of your sins and trust him as your savior. Trust that his death was your death. That he died for you. That he took your place. And if you'll trust him, then not only do you share in his death, but you share in his glorious resurrection as well. So trust him today. Many of you have already done that. 
and we await his return where he will be glorified in us. But why wait? Does your life right now anticipate that future glory by living for him the way you should? Your life matters right now. God can use you to accomplish his purposes. God can use you to bring glory to Christ right now if we let the anticipation of his return change us. If the anticipation of summer breaks and vacations and holidays changes the way we act and changes the things we do, how much more the return of Jesus Christ? Live for his glory. Let's stand. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for your word and this encouragement that, that Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. And we pray that we would take this and apply it to our lives and our church, Lord. I do pray for our church, and I pray for each one here and each one that makes up this assembly. And I pray that, that our lives would be lives that you look at and, and consider worthy. And I pray that we would actively show generosity and goodness to others so that you can use us. And I pray that all of that does not bring any glory upon ourselves, but all that we do is reflect the great glory of Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.